0: Section 47 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 24, Angie Stewart, The Murdered Child, Part 3. In the calm and dispassionate charge of Judge Peckham to the jury, some of the points thus passed in review were presented with additional emphasis. From the closing portions of this charge, we extract a few paragraphs. On the night of this fire, THE PRISONER AND HIS WIFE WERE FOUND AT THE DWELLING OF MR. WILLIAMS, ABOVE FIFTY RODS FROM THEIR HOUSE. SHE ARRIVED A LITTLE PRIOR TO HIS COMING. HE FOLLOWS A FEW MOMENTS AFTERWARDS, AND, AS THE GIRL SAYS, CAME IN ON A RUN. THEY REMAINED THERE, WHERE THEY NEVER HAD VISITED BEFORE, UP TO AND AFTER THE TIME THE CRY OF FIRE IS RAISED. AND THEN THEY START FOR THE FIRE and the prisoner arrives after it is all over with, after the fire was put out, after the body was discovered, taken outside, placed upon a blanket, and covered up. After he gets there, he inquires where his child is, as the witnesses say on one side, and I am not aware that there is any contradiction on that subject. And he leaned over backward, apparently fainting, from Brown's manner, a suspicion was excited that there was something wrong. Beale says he had suspicion of the genuineness of the fainting and drew his supporting arm away, and the moment he did so, Brown clenched hold of him by the collar to avoid falling. It is for you to say how much there was of fainting in that, and if he actually did faint, why did he do it? If he was an entirely innocent man and the child was not his own, why did he feign fainting? Did this man deem it proper to feign fainting for the death of another child than his own? And for what purpose? Then it is said the door was found locked. And why? Why is that outside door locked? This little girl, twelve years old, was at home engaged in ironing. The day of the fire. What necessity for the outside door being locked? There were neighbors living in the immediate vicinity. Only 20 feet off, a neighbor lived. And all around were houses. Why was the door locked and who locked it? The prisoner had just left the house. It is conceded. Why did he lock the door when he left it? It is assumed on the part of the prosecution that if anyone came to the door too early and sought admission he would suppose the family had gone away and would go off. If the doors were left unlocked and the fire too soon discovered, why then, if the child were murdered, the crime would be discovered? Then again, not only was the outside door locked, but the next door, the pantry door, was fastened. Why was that? There is one circumstance to which I deem it important to call your attention in reference to that inner door, although it has been alluded to by both counsel. Why was that pantry door fastened? Somebody fastened that door. That is to say, somebody put it in that shape so that it would stay fastened. Ordinarily, the door would not stay shut at all unless the foot was put against it and jammed it to. You could not do so on the inside, in order to make it stay shut, one had to be on the outside and put the foot against it. Did the little girl shut it? Could she so fasten it from the inside? If she did not do it, gentlemen, who did? No matter for what purpose, who did it? The prisoner was the last man who went out of that house. Did he put his foot against that pantry door and press it to before he left that house? "'Then another fact, gentlemen, and this fact you must answer by your verdict. "'The little girl, I apprehend, could hardly have put that door to under such circumstances. "'If she did not do it, who did? "'If the prisoner did, for what purpose did he fasten her in that place? "'And was she alive when she was fastened in there? "'Then, gentlemen, another fact.' This child is found in the east end of that pantry, which is about three or four feet in width, and the same in length, under an amount of rubbish constituting when put in a measure and measured eight bushels. There is no claim of anything having been put in there except the rubbish consequent upon the fall of plastering, which accumulated from the knocking of a hole into the ceiling above. "'This plaster ceiling was but a quarter of an inch in thickness, "'and as the witnesses say, "'this hole was made only for the express purpose "'of ascertaining whether fire existed in the wall. "'And, considering this circumstance, "'you will judge how much debris would naturally fall down. "'How was it that this little girl was found under that rubbish, "'so that they dug with an axe for some three or four minutes?' "'before they discovered the body. "'How is that? "'Mr. Beale, who carefully examined the mass at the time, "'says he saw pieces of pine board partly charred, "'some ashes, small bits of lath. "'Where did all this come from? "'Why was it there? "'And who put it there? "'The window lights were up as high "'as a man could conveniently reach, "'and there under them, Directly in front of the window was this burning mass and the little girl beneath it. If she was covered up with these materials, it is quite clear, I may say, she did not cover herself up. In addition to this state of facts is the evidence of the physicians. Three doctors have reasons which they consider satisfactory for stating that, in their judgment, the child was dead before burning. All three agree in that as a matter of science, giving as their opinion based upon science, examination, and experience that the child was dead, beyond doubt, before she was burned. The jury, after a lengthy consultation, found a verdict of guilty, and the court was convened to receive it. The usual forms being complied with and the usual questions put to the prisoner, who gave his age his forty-two years, the judge asked, Have you anything to say why the sentence of the law should not be passed upon you? Brown replied, Yes, sir. I am not guilty of the crime I am accused of. You have passed the verdict, and I suppose you have passed it according to your knowledge. You can kill my body, but you cannot kill my spirit. Have that in your mind in after days. "'That is all I have to say, Your Honor.' "'Judge Peckham then proceeded to sentence Brown "'and spoke as follows. "'Well, Brown, that statement will avail you nothing, "'nothing whatever. "'You have been fairly tried and deliberately. "'You have been ably and admirably defended. "'Your counsel was able and indomitable. "'He has been untiring in the defense of your case.' exhibiting a skill and ability I have rarely seen equaled. But the evidence in your case is of the clearest and most conclusive character. It satisfied not only the jury, but it satisfied the court and every intelligent mind who has listened to it. There can be but one result in this case from the undisputed facts. You got this little girl on the 17th of September, 1867, from her mother. Under the pretense of taking her with your wife, or sending her with your wife as a companion, as a sort of shield to the insults of men. Directly afterwards, you go to Cleveland from Dayton, Ohio, and there get her life insured with that of your wife. A proceeding quite unusual to insure the life of a little girl for $5,000. Insurance is usually affected by men who have families to support and debts to pay, and they are taken that their families may not be left in want in case their life is lost. But here, what reason was there on earth to insure the life of a little girl, 12 years old, for $5,000? You did more. You got her insured in a false name. And a false name was taken for no other purpose than to carry out the design with which you got her in Dayton. That assumption of a false name was absolutely done with a view of cutting off all communication by the mother with this child. And then you came on east to Canaan, to this comparatively secluded place in this county, and there located, stayed there for a time with your wife, if she be your wife, at the hotel, and then took this house. Your policy had three months to run when taken out, and within twelve days of its expiration, this tragedy occurred. After your business was finished, after you had sent your little valuables away from that house, and, with your wife, put on your best clothes preparatory to the scene, you knew was to occur that night. And then you had this little girl confined, the little child whom you were bound to treat well and kindly. Otherwise, she could complain to the neighbors that you were not in truth her father, and the moment that was known and death should occur, you would be troubled. Therefore, you had to treat her well, as you did doubtless, in order to secure her confidence, in order it might not be known you were not the father of the child. As the night approached, all your things being ready, the first that is seen is your wife goes out to a neighbor's house, about half past six. And in a short time after, from fifteen to twenty minutes, you come in, running in, and it is obvious why you ran in, perfectly obvious. You had just come from the perpetration of the dark deed, from killing this child, and hence you came into the house upon a run in order to escape as soon as possible, for fear the fire would occur before you got away. You ran into the house after you got there. There is no wonder you did not like to go back. And when you got there, after everything had been put out, you go back, and with the singular knowledge you directly start to where that dead child lay as you supposed. There you marched for that place, without anybody saying anything to you, and when told to go back, you then, without being charged with the commission of crime, except by your own conscience, which called upon you to do something to feign great grief, then you assumed to faint, and the man upon whose arm you lay, not suspecting you were not the father of the child, although he found you feigned fainting, it was not in the nature of the man, and he could not find it in his heart. "'to reproach the father of the child dead there with being a hypocrite. "'He could not do that, and hence your fainting went on, "'deceiving some, but not all. "'Then they examine this house and find the door locked. "'The reason why you locked it is obvious. "'You did not want that fire to interfere with you too quickly. "'They find the inner door fastened where this little child was burning inside.' And it is a singular fact, and it seems to be in the order of providence that a crime of this heinous character could not be committed without its being disclosed. You were so foolish as to shut that door to on the outside. The evidence shows that it was strong evidence against you. The little girl could not fasten the door on the inside. Nothing but the application of pressure would have closed it to remain shut and that you did on the outside. That shows, the child being on the inside, there was something wrong. Then you supposed, when you set fire to the funeral pyre, everything would be consumed and nothing could be left to testify against you. Nothing would be left, you supposed, and yet the very course you took to conceal the crime was one of the surest means of your detection.' You piled up the mass of faggots in that little pantry, which left in its results nearly eight bushels, six or seven besides what fell from the top. It was found on the top of this little girl, and of course the child did not cover herself, and no human being but you or your accomplices was engaged in it. That having been entirely accomplished, the child taken out, you then directly proceeded to a vigorous application to business to get your money. There is no pretense that anybody else did this thing. No pretense whatever. If there was a killing of that child, you alone and your colleague in crime were the guilty parties. No such murder of the child was ever committed except for some great motive. And that motive you had... $5,000 was a large sum to you, that necessarily directed your action, and then by fraud and perjury, you proceeded to obtain this money, and the sequel shows your detection. Under these facts, how idle to tell this jury that you are an innocent man. It is quite idle and useless, and I now say to you, Brown, for the purpose of having you understand that your career on earth is closed. "'to that you must make up your mind. "'The jury recommend you to mercy. "'Strange as it may be, under these appalling facts, "'they still have the tenderness to recommend you to mercy, "'though you showed none to that child. "'The court have but one thing to do. "'There is no power here to grant mercy, "'and I agree with the counsel that, being guilty of the offence, no executive will interfere between you and your doom. Therefore, I say in all kindness, your career is substantially closed, and you must make up your mind to meet a hereafter. Perhaps I ought to say to you, in view of the facts he presented, you found these materials, you took off the shelves in that pantry, and I am told by the district attorney indirectly that since the trial, by some singular mistake, he omitted to bring into the court the evidences he had of these boards comprising the shelves, and being in his possession, and did not produce them on this trial. He had them for some time, and having them so long in his possession, he forgot to produce them. But the case was clear before. No eye could look upon it and not know you cut up those shelves— "'to burn up that child after you had killed her. "'And now, Brown, it is quite useless for you to deny "'and to turn to that jury and say they have done you injustice. "'You thought by this arrangement to escape. "'You thought, perchance, that fire would burn quickly "'and the whole thing be consumed, that there would be not a trace. "'Possibly that might have been if there had been a strong fire.' But the course you took to kill the child was one of the reasons that proclaim your guilt. The fire was slow, it was smothered, and the consequence was that it smoldered while you were waiting for the development. This, then, is your case, and now it is only left for the court to pass the final sentence of the law upon you. And a very solemn thing it is for any tribunal to pass upon the life of a human being. YOU HAVE TAKEN LIFE DELIBERATELY AND FOR MONEY, THE LIFE OF AN INNOCENT, CONFIDING CHILD. AND YOU MUST PAY YOUR LIFE IN CONSEQUENCE. YOUR LIFE MUST BE FORFEITED. THE SENTENCE OF THE COURT IS THAT YOU, JOSEPH BROWN, ALIAS BARNEY, BE TAKEN TO THE COMMON JAIL IN THE CITY OF HUDSON, IN THE COUNTY OF COLUMBIA, AND THAT THERE, WITHIN THE WALLS OF THE JAIL, WITHIN THE YARD, ON SATURDAY, THE THIRTIETH DAY OF MAY, BETWEEN THE HOURS OF NINE O'CLOCK IN THE MORNING AND ONE O'CLOCK IN THE AFTERNOON, YOU BE HANGED BY THE NECK UNTIL YOU SHALL BE DEAD, AND MAY GOD HAVE MERCY UPON YOU. AT THE CONCLUSION OF HIS SENTENCE, THE PRISONER REMARKED, ALL RIGHT. COOL, STOICAL, AND ALMOST INDIFFERENT, HE BORE HIMSELF IN A MANNER WHICH SOME CALL BRAVE, BUT WHICH IN REALITY WAS DESPERATE and showed that a previous career of crime had hardened his heart to such an extent that not even the knowledge that his course was nearly run could move it. The sentence was duly carried into execution, at the time, place, and in the manner indicated. Josephine Brown was indicted as being accessory to the murder, but the case was never brought to trial. After lying in jail several months on nole Prose, was entered by the district attorney, and the greater criminal of the two was allowed to go free. End of Section 47